Well, good, as I said a moment ago, we've been working our way through the book of Genesis. And the book of Genesis is an amazing book. It's filled with practical application. There's going to be studies on marriage. There's going to be a study on the Holy Spirit. It just, it covers everything that that you would need to know as being a believer. It's going to deal with going through difficult times as we look through, or we look at the life of of, um, Joseph. It's going to teach us to walk by faith. Next week, we'll be talking about an incredible journey of faith as God calls Noah to do some pretty incredible things as God calls each of us at times to take a step of faith. We'll see Abraham and how he learns to walk by faith. And yet today we're going to begin to to look at a passage of the Bible that, that is going to answer a question for those of us who live in 2007. And as I said just a few moments ago, for some, this is going to be the spookiest chapter of the entire Bible. For me, I love it, but it might freak you out a little bit, which, you know, is probably not a bad thing. So I've asked you to turn today to to Matthew chapter 24 to get a New Testament perspective. And uh, in uh, Matthew 24, the Gospel of Matthew, it's recounting some of the things that Jesus has done and Jesus has said. And to, to bring you up to speed here in chapter 24, Jesus has just offended just about everybody in the known universe. He's offended the religious people, those who are casual about following him, those who are critical of other people who are trying to, to follow him. And so then he walks away from the crowds, and, and at a certain point, his disciples come to him. And Jesus has been talking to the disciples and to those who would be following him him and he's been telling them, you know, guys, I'm about to go away. They're going to crucify me on the cross. I'm going to go away, but there's going to come a time when I come back. And when I come back, he'll say, he'll say things like, behold, I go. And I, you know, if I go, I'll prepare a place for you, but I will come again. And, and the Bible talks much about this time when Jesus would come back again. And Jesus is talking to his disciples about a time when he would literally come back for his disciples. And in chapter 24, in verse three, Jesus is sitting down and his disciples come to him and they pose three questions. And Jesus is going to take the next, the next, or the remainder of the chapter to just simply answer their questions. So chap, chapter 24, verse 3, it says, As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, here's the question, Tell us when these things will happen and what will be the sign of your coming. We realize you're going away. How will we know when you're coming back? What will be the sign of your coming? And, and uh, when, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So that's what we want to know, Jesus, as we come to you today. What will be the sign of your coming? How will we know that it's about to happen? Is it really going to happen? What is the sign of the end of the age? And so Jesus takes the rest of the chapter and he begins to discuss this with his disciples. Anybody want to know when Jesus is coming back? How many of you don't believe Jesus is coming back? Good answer. (laughs) Because you see, the first time that Jesus showed up, although the Old Testament talked about the Messiah coming and was very specific about the time that he would show up, they became so casual because it took so long that they didn't expect him. And when he did show up, they missed him. And so Jesus spends a great deal of time talking about when he would come back again. And uh, you'll notice there in chapter 24, a couple of things as we highlight on the way through. 
But it says, Jesus talks and he says in verse 8, says, but these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. I want you to just notice uh, verse 6. He says, you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. In verse 7, he says, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, various places there will be famine, earthquakes, um, earthquakes, interesting uh, tsunami, you might say. Verse 8, he says, but all these things are merely the birth pangs, are merely the birth pangs. And here's what he's saying. As, as it gets near to the end, it's going to be like a woman who goes into labor. And I've seen this a couple of times and it goes like this. I'm an old pro. But, but a woman will begin to have contractions and she will feel like this is terrible. I am dying and uh, you got to get this baby out. She will call the doctor and the doctor will say, well, well tell me about your contractions. She'll, oh, it's just terrible. It's just terrible. Well, how far apart are they? Well, they're like 20 minutes apart. I'm dying. And the doctor will say, you know what? You're not dying. It's actually going to get worse. And then she calls back another few hours later. She says, they're 10 minutes apart, and I'm really dying now. Guys, am I, am I portraying this kind of? This? And then it gets closer and closer and more and more intense. And when Jesus says that it's going to be like birth pangs, essentially what he's saying is some of these events that I've just read, famines and wars and earthquakes, are going to become more and more intense, and they're going to become closer and closer together. Does that make sense so far? So he says that's going to be kind of what's going to be going on. So what we saw in the Oklahoma bombings back in 1995, or I think it was 1995 thereabouts, and and we thought, how could this happen on American soil? Do you remember that? And we were devastated that this could actually take place until 9-11. And so what Jesus says is you're going to see things like that. It's going to become more and more intense, closer and closer together, and yet that's still not going to be the end, although that lets you know that you're kind of coming to the end. Now, I've placed on your outline from Matthew 24, verses 32 through 39. And uh, so you can go back and read them on, in your Bible, but read them with me on your outline. There's a few things I want to highlight. Again, Jesus is answering the questions, and uh, when, what will be the sign of your coming? What will be the sign of the, the end of the age? And in verse 32, he says, okay, here's how it goes, guys. He says, now learn the parable from the fig tree. And you might want to underline, that's not going to make a lot of sense to we Americans in 2007, but to a group of Jewish guys back in about 32 AD, this made perfect sense. He says, now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is, right, is, that he is near right at the door. Truly I say to you, This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now, I want you to stop right there. You might want to hold your finger right there at that last place so you can pick it up as we read on. But when he talks about the fig tree, again, that doesn't make a lot of sense to you and I as Americans in 2007. But you're going to notice that this group of Jewish guys, they don't say, well, what do you mean by the whole fig tree thing? What's up with that? Apparently, they understood what he was talking about. In the Bible, you'll have certain symbols, and those certain symbols mean something all the time. For instance, if I come to you and I say, um, a sheep is typically, when God talks about his sheep, he's talking about who? Who? Us, believers, okay? Uh, The Holy Spirit, when it, it comes as a bird, whenever it talks about coming down, is always a, yeah, it's never a raven. It's always a dove. It's always a dove. And so there are certain things, we call that expositional constancy, where God uses certain symbols, and they always mean the same thing when they're used symbolically. And in 
in the Old Testament and, and throughout the Bible, when the fig tree is used, it always refers to the nation of Israel. And I've placed a verse there in your outline, uh, Hosea, and you can look that up later on, but it just says, my fig tree, Israel. And that's what it's talking about because God is always consistent with his idioms. And the, the disciples don't say, what are you talking about? Now, when he says this, uh, he says, now learn the parable from the fig tree. And, and he, he begins to describe this fig tree, and he says, when its branches already become tender, and it puts forth its leaves, kind of after a long winter, he says, it puts forth its leaves, and you know that summer is near. So, you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is right at the door. And here's what he's saying. He says, Israel is like the fig tree. We see that from the Old Testament. I'm not going to track down all the verses. You can look that up. But he says, there's going to come a point when Israel is going to be, it's going to begin to put forth its branches again. And the way this works is after a very long winter, you'll see, as, for those of you who lived up north, you'll see that with the trees, when they die, the leaves fall off and they look very dead. And it doesn't look like anything's going on. And then the springtime comes. And when the springtime comes, you'll see that the trees begin to put forth, as he says, shoots. And you'll see leaves coming back. You'll see that the, it'll start to turn green as it begins. Is this true? And yet it's after a long winter when everything seems dormant, it begins to put forth its leaves. And then Jesus says, when you see that, I want you to know something, that summer is here. Summer is right around the corner. It begins in the spring. The next season is summer. What happens in the summer? Well, for them, it meant harvest. And so essentially what Jesus is saying is the fig tree, the nation of Israel, is going to go through a very long winter season. It's going to look like nothing's going on. It's not going to have any leaves. And that's true. In 70 AD, the entire nation of Israel was removed and ceased to exist as a nation in 70 AD. Israel did not exist as a nation for nearly 2,000 years. And it wasn't until 1948 when all of a sudden, after nearly 2,000 years, that the United Nations once again recognizes Israel as a nation. You would say that Israel has, after a very long dormant period where it looks like nothing is going on, only nation that's ever existed out of its homeland for 2,000 years, after a very long winter, comes back in and all of a sudden you see it begin to sprout. And Jesus says, when you see that happen, when you see it come back to life, which it did in 1948, he says, I want you to know that summer's around the door. Uh, summer's right, right around the corner, and the harvest is near. So that's what he's saying there. Does that make sense so far? And then he says there, in verse 34, he says, Truly I say to you that this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. The generation that he's talking about is not the generation that he's speaking to right there because they did not see Israel come back into its land. They didn't see it after a long winter period where nothing was going on begin to sprout. So what generation is he talking about? He's talking about the generation that sees Israel come back into the land and after a long dormant period begin to sprout again. He says this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. What that means is that Jesus is saying that the, that the generation that sees Israel come, become a country again, begin to sprout again, that generation will not pass away until everything is all wrapped up. Does that make sense so far? Now, right there you go, that is a little freaky. And I'm not sure that I buy that, Pastor Dan. And Jesus knows that right now, even as I say that, inside of your heart, you might be saying, I don't think that, that I can really buy into that. And Jesus, knowing that, says, before you go down that path, I want to tell you one more thing. Before you question that, notice what he says in the very next verse. 
for those of us who would question. He would say, I know what you're thinking. So he says in verse 35, guys, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Essentially, Jesus is saying, what I'm, just, what I'm telling you right now, you can take to the bank. You can take to the bank. You and I live in the final generation, according to what we see in the scriptures. Now, he says, this generation will pass away. Now, uh, will not pass away. So, a couple of things. Verse 36, you will notice, he says there on, on your outline, he says, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. Only God knows the day or the hour that Jesus is actually going to come back. And uh, so no predictions. Uh, I, I hope it's after the picnic today. But I don't know. It could be later on this evening. It could be next week. I don't know the day. I know the generation, but I don't know the day. And so the disciples said, well, Jesus, um, then what will be the sign of your coming? Okay, what's going to be the sign that we know that this is really it? What's the sign of your coming? And so Jesus continues and he says, okay, here's your sign. And he continues and he says in verse 37, he says this, and you might want to underline this. He says, for the coming of the Son of Man will be, and you want to underline, just like, just like the days of who? The days of Noah. That's interesting because that's what we're going to study today. He says, for as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be? And we're going to find out that not everybody embraced what was going to happen in in Noah's day. Just as in our day, there's going to be many who will not embrace what Jesus says is absolutely going to take place. So what will it be like? It will be just like the days of Noah. The, thing, the same things that were going on in the days of Noah will be going on just at, in the time that Jesus comes back. And we're going to look at that today. But most will be oblivious to what's going on in the time that they live. Most will be oblivious to, to what's going on in the time that they live. Now, by the way, um, Jesus says it'll be just the same as in the days of Noah. Here's what that tells us. You ready? You don't have to write this down, but you might want to write it somewhere. Jesus believed in the flood story. Jesus believed in Noah. He believed that it actually happened literally because he doesn't tell it to us like it's a fable. He says it's just like in those days. So what literally happened, or what Noah, according to Jesus, this literally happened. So when somebody comes to you and says, well, I don't really buy that. You know, I just don't believe that. You place us in a very difficult position. We either have to believe you or Jesus. And uh, I'm, I'm sticking with him. So, now, before we go to Genesis, I want to just highlight a couple, couple more verses before we go to Genesis chapter 6 and talk about this. By the way, does anybody find this interesting? Okay, good. So, um, a couple more verses. Next verse on your outline from Thessalonians, Paul said it like this. Uh, he says, and you might want to underline a couple of things. He says, for you yourselves, underline you yourselves, know full well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While they, underline they, are saying peace and safety, underline peace and safety, then destruction will come upon who? Them. Underline, that's important because it's not going to be you or us. Suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with child. Oh, we've seen that before. And who? They will not escape. But you... Brethren, underline that, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. And so a couple of things. First of all, Paul is saying there is they and there's them. 
They and them are those who are not part of the body of Christ. They're not part of the church. They don't know Jesus. Uh, they've rejected him. They, they just haven't embraced. And, and, and he says that, that that will be they. And they will be saying peace and safety. He says it will be in a time when the buzzwords will be peace and safety. They will be looking for peace and safety. It will not be a time of peace and safety, but that's what they're looking for. That makes sense? But then he says, he says, but you, brethren, you see, you're not like, you're not like they and them. You're not to be like them. You are not in the darkness that this day should take you by surprise. Essentially, what he's saying is that although you won't know the day or the hour, you should know the time in which you live. And this is the time in which you live where the buzzword is, unlike any other time in the history of the world, peace and safety. Peter says it like this. Peter says there in your outline, he says, but you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this, first of all, That in the last days, underline that, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, underline that, and saying, here's what they're going to be saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues as it was from the beginning. And so here's what they're going to be saying. In the last days, people are going to be saying, come on, you guys keep talking about him coming back. Where's the promise of his coming? I don't see Jesus. You've been talking about it for 2,000 years. Why, why, why do you think now is the time? And, and we just don't buy it. Now, there is an aspect of this verse that, that um, is very important to us because it says that they will be mocking the fact that Jesus is coming back. Make sense? Do you know that Buddhists aren't really mocking that? Because they don't know. It's not even part of their theology. Do you know that Muslims aren't mocking this? They're not making fun of this. You know why? It's not part of their theology. They don't know. So in order to mock this, it has to be somebody who knows and understands. It has to be somebody who has heard this truth and then mocks it. And I want to suggest to you that what Peter is talking about is inside the church, there will be those who would be mocking the teaching of Jesus coming back because you have to know about it in order to mock it. And so right now, if you're here and you're going, yeah, I don't buy that. Come on, you guys keep talking about that. I want you to know that you're part of the sign that the time is now. <laughs> but it has to be somebody who understands it. But then I, I want you to notice, he says, know first of all that in the last days, these, these people coming to church, these people who know about this, they will come with their mocking and they will be following their own, what's it say? Do you know that you and I live in a very unique time? where even within this church, there are some of you who are having sex with your boyfriend and your girlfriend. There are some of you who are living together. And you know what God says about certain things. You know what God says about your finances. But here, here, here's what it is. You're in the church, and there's something about you that right now that, that you follow your own lust as a believer. You say, I believe, and you are here, but when the rubber hits the road, if it's what you want to do or what God says to do, you're going with you every time. That makes sense? And it's a sign of the last days within the church. Mockers within the church. Okay, that makes sense? Okay. Well, let's go back to chapter 6 of uh, Genesis and see what God has to say in this time. First of all, Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. Again, the freakiest chapter of the whole Bible. Everybody there? 
First thing we notice, Jesus says it's going to be just like the days of Noah. So what's going on in Noah's day? Well, verse 1, it says, It came about when men began to underline multiply on the face of the land or face of the earth, and daughters were born to them. First thing it tells us, that it's going to be a time when mankind is multiplying on the earth. So I want you to write this down. The first thing we're going to notice is going to be a population explosion. Now, why is that so important? What's interesting to me, that from the time of Noah to 1865, about 1865, some say 1867, but from the time of Noah to just about the time of our Civil War, it took to, to get from about eight people to the first one billion people. A few thousand years. Make sense? From 1865 to 1935, actually 37, under 70 years, we added another billion people. And so we added, we went a few thousand years all the way to just down to about 70 years. Well, that was 2 billion people in 1935, but in 1965, once again, the earth added another billion people. And so in 1965, just 30 years after 1935, we added another billion people to we were at 3 billion people. 30 years later, 1995, we don't add a billion We simply double. And the earth goes to six billion people. Six billion people. And we are told that the earth will now, as far as number of people on the face of the earth, that we will double in population every 15 years. So, does that sound like a population explosion? Okay. Now, the other fact that you might not know is that most of those people are, in fact, moving to Palm Beach County. So... (laughs) Verse 1 through 4, we pick it up and it says, Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God, underline that, and the daughters of men, underline that, and you see these trying to make a difference and so that we don't miss it, the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not strive. The word strive can also be translated as referee, by the way. My spirit will not strive with man forever because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. You got 120 years, guys. Verse 4. The Nephilim, some of your translations will say giants, were on the earth. And I want you to underline Nephilim or giants, whichever word your translation says. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. Now you want to underline and also afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, they were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. Now, pretty freaky stuff, especially when you uh, see what's really going on here. But I want you to write this down. Uh, If nothing else, we can agree on this. It's a time, number two, when strange sexual practices were becoming normal. And so it's just a time when things were going on sexually, they shouldn't be going on, and and it just became a rather normal thing. And you and I live in a time where strange sexual practices have become normal. And uh, it's so normal, we don't even think that it's strange anymore. Uh, You know, we don't watch TV, but when we do, we're always, when we go to a hotel or something in in our family and we'll turn on the TV, we're just shocked at what's on the television. And and it's, if you watch it every day, you become desensitized. But if you haven't seen television in five years and you turn it on, you go, man, what in the world is going on? So um, anyway, so a couple of things. 
Um, and I've, I've switched this around on the outline just a little bit, just so it makes more sense. The sons of God, where it says sons of God on your outline, and you have to skip down just a little bit. The sons of God, the Hebrew word there is benai Elohim. Impress your friends at parties. But it's always used in the Old Testament as an Old Testament way of saying angels. Benai Elohim is just an Old Testament way of saying angels. Every time it's used except one time, it always refers to angels. The only other time it's used, Benai Elohim, sons of God, or son of God, is when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the fire, and Nebuchadnezzar says, doesn't there four of them in there? I threw three of them in. There's four of them, but one looks like the Benai Elohim, son of God, and it literally was. So, so it always refers to something that is not human, something that is, is not like, like you and I. And, and so apparently what's going on is that there are, and you know, here in our case, it's going to be fallen angels who are cohabitating with the daughters of men. Now, is this freaking anybody or just me? I'm the only one, right? Pretty normal stuff. You guys watch too much TV. Anyway, so, so, so the question is, can angels do that? You know, can fallen angels do that? Well, it's interesting to me that in the New Testament, Jesus is asked about What's it going to be like for us married guys in heaven? You know, who, who am I going to be married to? If you've had more than one wife, which one do you wind up with in heaven? And Jesus says this on your outline from Mark's gospel. And he says, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage or given in marriage, underline this, but are like angels in heaven or like angels in heaven. Now, I find it interesting that Jesus just doesn't say they're like angels. But you notice, you notice that he has to say they're like angels in heaven. Why? Well, because apparently some other angels took on a form that they weren't supposed to take on and did some things that were rather strange. And so he feels the need to tack that on. Now, go up on your outline uh, to a couple of verses. First of all, from Jude, the New Testament tells us, gives a little bit more insight, and it says, and the angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned, underline that, abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness uh, for the judgment of the great day. So apparently uh, there was a time when angels abandoned their abode. Here's what I'm going to suggest to you, that when they abandoned their abode, their dwelling, they abandoned the spirit world and they came into the physical realm. In the Bible, it's very common for angels to appear, and they are always confused with men. In the Bible, anytime an angel is mentioned, it's always in the masculine. Uh, it's never, it never mentions women as angels. It's always men, men or masculine angels. Does that mean there's not female angels? No, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that in the Bible, when it refers to that, it always mentions them in the masculine. That makes sense? So who are these? And, and these angels who are now kept in eternal bonds, who abandoned something they were supposed to be doing, what took place? And, and when is this taking place? And, and is there anywhere in the Bible that gives a little bit more insight? And so Peter chimes in there on your outline, and he says, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who once were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting, when? In the underlying days of Noah during the construction of the ark. And so there is apparently a time in history where some angels who were fallen 
came to the earth and did some pretty strange things. It was so strange that God said, you know, there are fallen angels, but they are not right now in their eternal dwelling. But these guys, what they did is so despicable, we are going to chain them up. Well, it gets even a little bit more interesting than that. Genesis tells us what they did when they left their abode. Verse 2, it says that the sons of God, the Benai Elohim, saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. The result of this was in verse 4, it says the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, also after. When the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men of old, who were of old, men of renown. That's interesting. He really wants you to get the fact that the daughters of men are very separate than the Benai Elohim, sons of God. Something's going on here. He's going to tell you a couple of times so you don't miss it and you don't think it's like uh, good guys having uh, relationships with bad girls. That's not the idea. But apparently there was an offspring. The offspring was called in the Bible Nephilim. Nephilim. Some of your translations will say giants. Nephilim comes from the Hebrew word means nephal or simply fallen, fallen. So Nephilim simply means fallen ones, gave birth to fallen ones. Now, why, why were they called that? Well, because they weren't really human and they weren't really angelic. They weren't really human, so they didn't have a human soul or spirit, so they, they couldn't really um, be saved. They weren't really angelic, and so they, they were kind of here on, on the earth, and the Bible talks about this in several places, but they were fallen. And uh, it, when it says men of renown, it's not speaking about them in the positive in the sense that, that they did good things. It means they were renowned for doing despicable things. In 270 B.C., three centuries before Jesus is born, the Jewish leadership got together and said, everybody speak in Greek. We need to have a translation in Greek. So they hired 70 scholars, and those 70 scholars translated the Old Testament Hebrew into Greek three centuries before Jesus is born. It's called the Septuagint. It's the uh, common um, translation of that day, again, 270 years before Jesus is born. In that, in Genesis chapter 6, verse 4, it says, and you might want to underline it, put on your outline, it says, now the giants were upon the earth in those days and after that. They used the word in the Greek, gigantes, which just means giants. Now, we might discount this and think, oh, this is just fable, except when you come to a culture, and that culture has a legend that's been passed down from generation to generation, and that legend is specific to that culture, you would say, that's quaint, that's interesting, it's, it's something, you know, it's it, like Aesop's fables or whatever. When that legend is prevalent or present in every culture of the world, and civilizations that have had no contact with one another, for instance, in South America and China and the Greeks and the Romans and all the way up in, in Europe, for thousands of years, there has been these legends of the giants. And so for those of you who have an anthropological background, you would say, well, that, that's, that's interesting when you hear the same legend all over the entire world. In the Greek culture, they had for this type of activity in their 
um, legends, in their mythology, we might say, but in their legends, they had what were called the Titans. And I put that on your outline, the Titans. The Titans were simply these giants, very strong, who were the combination of typically a woman, a female, and then a masculine deity, that, as they would call it, and that would give birth to some type of, of um, titan. So you, when you hear of um, Hercules and, and all of these, they, w- they would be considered the titans. that makes sense so far? Now, linguists tell us that the word titan comes from an earlier word from the Chaldeans, which was shaitan. The Chaldeans took their word for the same thing from an earlier Hebrew word, and you might want to write this down, is simply Satan. In Hebrew and English, the word Satan is the same, but the earlier word. So, so it says um, in verse 4, and it says, and after this, and, or afterward. Verse 4 it says, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward. Now, when the nation of Israel will go into the promised land, they're going to send spies in. And, and uh, you notice that when they come back and they talk about the things that are going on in the promised land, notice from Numbers chapter 13, it says, there, there also we saw the Nephilim. The sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight. And, and so we were in their sight. And here's what they're saying. These guys were huge. They were big. They were tall. And, uh, and so... You have uh, in Deuteronomy, it says it like this. It says, King Og of Bashan was the last of the giant Rephaites. His iron bed was more than 13 feet long and 6 feet wide. Big guy? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so God says this is going on. And there is, within the human race, there is a perversion. Somebody's come along, they want to, to change that. They want to change what God wants to, to, to save. And God says, I see what's going on, and men are allowing this, and they're following this sort of thing. And, and, and he says, you've got 120 years. I'm given 120 years to make some changes, to repent, and uh, we'll see how the story goes. In verse 5, by the way, you made it through the freakiest part of the whole Bible. You survived. And, and it's amazing to me that, that there's so much in mythology that has its roots and truth. And, and yet, over the years, the stories become distorted. But we have no idea, we have no ability really to imagine what it was like in the antediluvian world when, when things were very different. Well, verse 5, it says, if it's going to be like as in the days of Noah, it says, Then the Lord said that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every, underline this, intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And so here's what he's saying. He's saying it was in a time which would be characterized, and you might want to write this down, by evil imagination. God saw the wickedness of man on your outline was great in the earth, and every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Not everybody was doing bad things, but they were imagining it. You see, they were watching pornography late at night and at work and all all these places on the Internet. They were watching things on TV that that caused them, they didn't really participate in it. They were just kind of watching it, and they kind of molded over deep inside of them. And they looked at things, and they thought about things, and God looks and says, I see what's going on in your heart. You're doing all this. Your thoughts are wicked. You might not be actually out doing it, but the intent of your thoughts in your heart is absolutely wicked. You know, and even today, we allow people into our living room to play with our kids through television that we would not let through our front door. 
And we watch and we think, we watch things that would make God cry, things that God says, one day I'm going to bring judgment because of these things. And we watch and we call it entertainment. And, uh, and God says their hearts were evil. And, and they knew, but they didn't change. Make sense? Verse 6, he says, The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And you just notice that God doesn't throw a temper tantrum when he sees this, and he doesn't, he doesn't breathe fire from heaven. He just says, you know, my heart breaks. My heart breaks for what the people that I've created that I love are allowing to go on. And they seem to be so accustomed to it, it doesn't even bother them. In verse 7, it says, Then the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. And here's the idea. Apparently what was going on in that time had gone beyond man's ability actually to repent. And so God says, I'm going to have to come in and I'm going to have to destroy everything. And some people look at this and they go, you know, it's pretty mean of God to come in and wipe out the whole world. Here's how it works. Let's say at your house you have your children and you have a dog. And somehow that dog gets bit by a squirrel. The squirrel has rabies. And all of a sudden, your dog has rabies. And as that dog is there at your house, you see the foaming of the mouth. You see the things that are going on. And so you look at this dog and you call animal control and you say, I need you to come get this dog. You got to put this dog down. So animal control comes. They take the dog and they put the dog down. That does not make you a bad person. Why? Well, first of all, The dog has a disease that's incurable. The dog is miserable. The dog is beyond help. You can't help the dog. Out of mercy, you will put that dog down. Does that make sense? But you also have children. And to allow that dog to be running free among your children leads to the opportunity that what that dog has is going to infect your children. So out of mercy for the dog and out of love for your children... You're going to put the dog down because the dog is beyond cure. And when God looked at what was going on, he says, you know, I've, I've given 120 years and here's what's happened. You're beyond cure. And I have to do something because what I see going on is infecting mankind. And I have to stop that. And so out of mercy and out of protection for mankind, God says, I have to put them down. So make sense? Okay, verse 8, he says, But in this time, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. We'll come back to that. Verses 9 and 10, he says, But these are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless, underline blameless in his time, and Noah walked with God. Noah walked with God. Verse 10, Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, interesting, when he says he was blameless in his time, some of your translations will say he was perfect in his time. It's, it's an interesting Hebrew word because it can also be translated that he was pure in the sense that he was um, not a result of these strange combinations. When it says that he was pure or he was blameless, the Hebrew word tom just simply means that he was he was fully human. There was nothing else added into the, the gene pool. And so it, it can also mean that. So just to clue you in on that. Verse 11, it says, uh, again, uh, things going on as in the days of Noah. You know, it's a weird 
time of multiplication of, of people on the earth and it's strange sexual things going on. And then um, it goes on and it says, um, verse 11, it says, Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. So you might want to write that down. The earth was filled with violence. That's interesting to me. The earth was filled with violence. It appears to be a time when they were flying airplanes into buildings targeting civilians. They were at war in Iraq and Afghanistan and Bosnia and Serbia and Croatia and all the other places. The Middle East was a continuous powder keg. They were abducting children at gunpoint at bus stops in the morning. It was a time when the earth was filled with violence. You and I live in a time where the earth is filled with violence. Many of you are old enough to remember a time when you didn't have to lock your door at night. But then we had keys because we thought, well, just to be safe. And we started locking our doors. But now a lock is no longer enough. Now you need an alarm system. Why? Because the earth is filled with violence. We don't feel safe letting our children walk to school. We don't feel safe going places at night. We, we don't feel safe because the earth is filled with violence. Jesus says it will be like birth plant pangs. It will become more and more intense and closer and closer together. So no matter what politicians promise us, here's what we can count on. It's not going to be better in 10 years from now than it is today. It's, the earth is filled with violence. Make sense? Verse 12, it says... And God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Noah's flesh wasn't corrupted. But apparently what was going on was a corruption of mankind. So, and uh, whatever they were doing, this was mixed, and it was just evil. Now go back to verse 8. It's in this time when all this is going on, God looks down and he sees somebody, and his name is Noah. And Noah is not like what's going on in the world. And it says, in my Bible, it says that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. I prefer the King James Version and also the the way that it was uh, translated uh, by the, the Jewish leadership three centuries before Jesus was even born. And they translated it like this. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Grace or favor. You notice in verse 9, it says that he's righteous. You'll see in verse 9, it says that he walked with God. And so here's a man that God gives his grace to. Noah responds. Noah, as he responds to this, God begins to share with Noah some of the things that are going on and how Noah, as a man of God, can prepare himself. So verse 13, and we're going to talk about this more next week, so I'm just going to highlight a couple of things. Verse 13, then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark, underline ark, of gopher wood, and you shall make the ark with rooms, and you shall cover it inside and outside with pitch. Now, very quickly, just just a, a little Bible information. The word ark is simply the Hebrew word box, box. So when you see a story and it has Noah's Ark and it looks like a ship, that's not the case. You'll see the dimensions. Noah just built a big box. So, but, you know, it doesn't sound like a good children's story if you call it Noah's Box. So it, it, it seems to sound better if you call it Noah's Ark. So um, verse 
13, verse 15, it says, this is how you shall make it. The length, uh, length of the ark shall be 300, 300 cubits, and its breadth shall be 50 cubits, and its height's 30 cubits. We'll talk about that a little bit more later. But it's going to be about 450 feet long, and uh, that translates into a, a compartment size that would hold somewhere between 500 and 550 rail boxcars. That's the, the size of it. So it's pretty, pretty big. Verse 16, he says, You shall make a window for the ark and finish it to a cubit from the top. And set the door of the ark inside it, and you shall make it with lower and second and third decks. And again, we'll talk about this more next week. Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood on the water of the earth to destroy all flesh in which the breath of life from under heaven and everything that is on the earth shall perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark. You, and underline this, your sons, your wife, your sons and your son's wife with you, or your son's wives with you. Now, I want you to write this down because Jesus says it's going to be just like the days of Noah. And just like the days of Noah, Noah for 120 years preached that this was going to happen. And, and the reality is not many people believed it. And it would be just the same, Jesus says, in the time that I come, it will be just the same. And so write this down. Just like in the days of Noah, only a few would believe and get ready. Now we'll stop there this week. Next week, as we, as we look at this, we're going to look at Noah's incredible walk of faith. But as you're here today, and as we look next week at Noah's walk of faith, we're going to find out that God's not going to call you to walk with him very long before he begins to start asking you to take a step of faith and to trust him in certain areas of your life. And we'll see that next week as we travel through the story of Noah. But here's the thing. Noah, for 120 years, says, guys, God spoke to me. It's interesting to me that God only gave Noah about a paragraph of his word. He only spoke to him one time in 100 years. It's not like he was showing up every day. And, and, and Noah believed God's word, and he acted on God's word. The New Testament says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. The reality is that as Noah preached, only a few would believe. And so my question for you today is simply this. Jesus has laid it out, but do you believe it? Will you be like the eight? Will you be like the eight that when he comes back, he removes the few but the many, well, they said, I don't, I don't buy it. I don't believe it. No, you've been saying this for 100 years. I don't buy it. I hope today that as you've, you've heard this, and now it's a little freaky. I hope today that you know that you know that you know one thing. That you know him. And that you believe him. And when you look at this, you say, you know what? I've been like the one who hasn't believed and I need to believe. And I need to make sure that when this all goes down, that I'm part of that group. And it's very simple. There's not even a prayer in the Bible that you can pray. It's just very simply saying, Jesus, 
I don't understand it all, but I believe you. I'm inviting you to come into my life to wash me clean of my sins. I'm putting my trust in you. And that's all I know. It's very simple. And so today, as uh, we just close, I'm going to pray a simple prayer. And as I pray, if you would and you haven't, then would you just say in your own way, Jesus, I'm trusting you. You're coming back. I've been like those who don't believe, and I need to believe. I've seen some things you've laid it out pretty specifically in your word, and we've only covered a couple of verses today. So would you invite him in today? Let me just pray for you. Heavenly Father, we come before you today, and, and Lord, in this room, we, we do believe when we trust your word. And Lord, we've seen some things that are strange to our ears in 2007. And, and Lord, this was fairly common stuff a few thousand years ago, but for us, it's a little difficult. And yet, Lord, as we see that in your word, everything there is by design, and you've led us into a little bit of what's gone on in times past. Father, I pray that for, if there's any person here today who has not trusted you, that even right now as I'm praying, that they would just inside in their spirit say, Jesus, I trust. Come into my life. I want to follow you. I want you to do something in my life. And Father, as they pray that, I pray that you would begin the most incredible journey. And Lord, next week as we look at the most incredible faith journey and how you call us to walk in faith and to trust you so that you can do great things in our life. I pray that for those this week, that they would begin to experience as they walk in faith, trusting you and your word and your spirit. That you would just become so real. And I thank you for each and every person here today for their faithfulness to you and their faithfulness to your word. And we thank you, God, for all that you want to do in our lives and in the life of this church in these of what your word says are the last days. May we be last days believers and not like those who chase their own lusts, who mock what it is that you say but as those who trust you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.